Turn to Romans chapter 3 for our reading this morning. We're going to read verses 1 to 20, and the focus of the sermon will be verses 9 to 20. The title of the sermon this morning is The Universality of Sin. Hear God's Word, Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord. The writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record for us the parable of the sower. Many of you will be familiar with that parable. Jesus uses the parable of the, so the sower to describe how people receive the, the ministry of the gospel, the preached word. He describes it like a sower. Uh, or a farmer, like a farmer out in the field, sowing seed. Some of it falls, he says, on hard ground, some on rocky ground, some on weeds uh, or among weeds and thorns. And yet some of it, some of the seed falls on well-tilled and good soil. It's the seed, says Jesus, that falls on good, well-prepared soil that grows and produces fruit. Now it's interesting, Paul in his letter to the, his first letter to the Corinthians, he picks up 
on this imagery of the farmer uh, and relating it to the ministry like Jesus does. In a very familiar passage that when I start to read it many of you uh, will, will know of it, he says of himself, I plant, Apollos waters, but God gives the growth. Now this imagery is, is helpful in thinking about the, the preaching of the Gospel and how, how it relates to uh, the reception of it by humans. The human soul uh, is like hard ground. It's harsh. It's a hostile environment for the seed of the Gospel. In order to receive the ministry of the Word, the soil of the heart must be prepared, softened, tilled up, so to speak. You recall the language of the Old Testament speaking God's judgment and, and His characterization of the Jewish people. They are a hard-hearted and a stiff-necked people. A hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. Their souls need to be plowed and softened through the work of the preaching of the law. That's the purpose of the law. It's not to give us a, a, a plan or an option of how we can be justified. The law is there to stir and soften the, whole, the soul, making it receptive to the gospel. Look in uh, verse 20 of our section, Romans 3.20. Paul writes, For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in the sight of, of God. It's not even an option. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is there to reveal to us our need of a righteousness that comes apart from the law. Our need of a Savior who is Jesus Christ. Paul is doing the work of plowing in Romans 1, 18 to 3, 20. And if you think about the biblical pattern, this is the same pattern that the Bible shows. We, we have Adam being created under the covenant of works, the covenant of law. That comes first, then he sees his own sinful heart, and God promises gospel. We see the, the, the Jewish people in the whole Old Testament time period under Moses, which is a law administration. They're under the law to prepare them for the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. If you look at apostolic preaching in the book of Acts, is a fine resource to examine this. But the very first sermon Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he starts off by presenting sin to the people. He says to them, he makes this long argument, it's a beautiful argument, but he basically says, you Jews are guilty of murdering the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Softening the heart, plowing the soul. And what does that lead to? It leads to their question, what must we do to be saved? Now they're ready for Christ, now they're ready for the Gospel. And he tells them, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Pride and 
self-righteousness, make us resistant to the gospel itself, because the gospel strips us of those things. It makes us acknowledge that we are failures, and we are totally dependent on somebody else. That's a hard thing for sinful humans to acknowledge. We must own our sinful condition in order to turn to Christ. We're going to look at this section and break it down in under, uh, under two parts. First, understanding our problem. And then second, nothing new under the sun. Realizing that this is the same problem that we faced from the time of Adam. So, understanding our problem. I grew up in a family consumed by sports. Many of you you know this. I've talked about my father. You know he passed away in February. But he, he was uh, a coach, a baseball coach, a well-respected, well-known baseball coach in, in Texas. He had a very long and a successful career as a coach. Uh, I think, I'm not, I have to verify this, but I think I remember somebody talking about this at, at my dad's funeral. He, together with another coach, have the longest winning streak in the nation. A team called South San Antonio, South San Bobcats. They won, they were undefeated for season after season and won multiple state championships. But he, he won six state championships during his time coaching and uh, was honored by being inducted into the Texas High School Coaches Hall of Fame. So that was my world. And think about the world of sports. Think about the, the mindset. If you're a, an athlete uh, on a team, I know uh, many in the South where we are, college football is a big thing. A lot of people love it. A lot of people follow it. Um, but in the world of sports, it's a competitive environment. And you're always striving to be better, to be better than the team you're playing to be better than somebody else at your position. Maybe to be better than you were the year before. We're always striving to be better. And it's apparent that the Jews took that kind of mentality and brought it into the spiritual realm. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better? Are we better off? When you compare us, if we went head-to-head -head with the Gentiles, are we better than them? And maybe sometimes we fall into that trap as well. We look around at other Christians in the congregation, hmm, I think I'm better than that person. My life is more disciplined than that person. I'm more consistent at worship than, than that person. We, our, our flesh likes to fall back into that competitive view of religion. We want to be more godly or more righteous than others. It's us against them. Maybe it's our particular brand of Christianity against another brand of Christianity. Well, we're better than they are. We've got it figured out more than they have it figured out. 
the Jews versus the Greeks. Here's the problem, though. And this is what Paul so masterfully brings out. Our, our justification before the judgment seat of God isn't going to be a comparison between us and others. We're going to put these people in the top 10%. Uh, they've, been, they've led a pretty good life, you know, so we're going to move them up uh, the depth chart spiritually. No, God doesn't do it that way. Paul's saying, you Jews, you, you, who cares if you're better than the Greeks? God doesn't judge, judge us based on how we compare with others. He judges us based on how we compare with His holy law. It's the law that is the standard of righteousness. And the law searches even into the depths of our hearts. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul spells this out for us. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. The Jews are under the law. Who cares if they're better than the Greeks? How do they stand in relation to the law? Verse 20, for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law allows no failure. It doesn't allow for better, only best. It demands perfect conformity to the moral standards of God Himself. God views all under sin. All human beings deserve condemnation. Look at the, the universal language that Paul employs in the, this text. It's, it's almost shocking. I'm sure when he preached this kind of message to the Jews, it made them extremely uncomfortable because they didn't see themselves in this light. Verse 9, both Jews and Greeks, he says, are under sin. Those are the only two categories that Paul has at, at dividing up the human race. You're either a child of God or you're not. Jews and Greeks, that's, he, that's his way of basically saying all human beings. All human beings are under sin. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks after God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. And we could go right through that text. And it, it's just in this, this clear universal language. There is not a single person on the earth who does good in the sight of God. All have turned aside. No one does good. No, not even one. Now, why do we think people do? You know, we, we can in our minds say, well, I know so-and-so, and, and they're a good person. They're a good Christian. Well, the only way we can say that is by comparing them to other people who are not so good at being Christians, right? But God doesn't do that. We couldn't 
make that claim if we compared it to the rigors of holiness demanded by God. What Paul is trying to, to tell us here is that the problem isn't with individuals. We don't enter into the world with this blank slate and we get to paint on it whatever life we want. That's not, that's not his understanding of humans. It's a much bigger and a much all, and a more all comprehensive problem. It is a problem with the entire human race, every nationality, color, tribe, ethnic group. Our problem is not what we do. And it's, it's so hard to get people to see this. Our problem is not what we do. Why am I condemned? Well, because I did this and this and this and this. Why am I not condemned? Because I didn't do this, this, and this, and this. Now, our problem is deeper than that. It's not what we do. We sin in particular ways. Our problem is not that. It is who we are. We, by nature, are born in a polluted way. We're, we're born corrupt by sin. I think the, the best resource to find this out is you gather preschool teachers from all over the world. You set them down and they explain to you how children act. How they whine and fuss when they don't get their way. How they snatch toys away from others. Uh, I'm pretty sure the parents aren't teaching them that. Hey honey, come here. Let's, when you get in there and Tommy gets the red fire truck, you just go snatch it right out of his hand and laugh at him. They don't do that. Where do the kids get that? Why, why from such an early stage are kids evidencing these practices? Stealing, lying, because by nature they're sinful. Paul looks back to Psalm 51 uh, in, in, verses, in verse 4 of chapter 3. And I want to remind you something that, that David mentioned in Psalm 51. And the Jews, they should have known this. This was their scripture. They had the oracles of God. In Psalm 51, David, reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba, makes a, a very powerful claim. Why did he sin with Bathsheba? Well, he says in Psalm 51, Behold, look at this everyone, behold, I want you to think about me, righteous King David, the, the author of many of the Psalms, a man after God's own heart. Behold, even I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's talking about original sin. Many of us are pretty well uh, taught in, in Reformed theology, the five points of Calvin. We're talking total depravity here. The T in tulip. This is traced back to our common father, Adam. Adam was told in the garden, if you eat, you will certainly die. And he went ahead and, and tested the theory. And uh, he didn't fall over physically dead. He didn't have a heart attack when he took a bite of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But spiritually speaking, he corrupted human nature for everyone. 
We've got to understand these things to understand Christ and the gospel, to see our, our need for Him. In Romans chapter 5, if you'll turn there, <clears throat> Paul makes this explicit. In Romans 5 verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and he's talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all because all sinned. Why can't we gain justification through keeping the law? Because we are corrupt in our nature. There is none, no one, who keeps the law in the way that God demands. In chapter 8 of Romans, verses 7 to 8, Paul is speaking of the flesh, and that's his way of talking about corrupt human nature. In Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, born of Adam, cannot please God. So we see our problem isn't in our particular sins, our problem is bigger. It's who we are by nature. And I don't know if, if you've thought this through, but we can't change that. God has to change that. We can't just change our nature. God must do it. That's why Jesus says things like this, you must be born again. What is He talking about? No one will come to the Father unless they're born of the Spirit. We can't, Paul says, in the flesh. The second point I want to draw out is this, nothing new under the sun. In verses 10 to 18, Paul compiles a chain of quotes from the Old Testament. He picks up from the Psalms, from prophets, and from wisdom literature, things that the Jews should be very familiar with. In chapter, chapters 1 and 2, Paul appeals to human reason in his arguments. He's trying to present evidence that should be clear to us, should be reasonably deduced in his argumentation. Look at, at chapter 1, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We should know, we should be able to reason that God exists. Then he does the same with the Jews, showing that they are hypocrites, that they have this law, they're teachers of this law, but they don't keep it themselves. And they bring shame upon their God because of their hypocrisy. Now, maybe you don't buy his arguments. Maybe you sit and listen and think, well, I don't know if I, if I follow what Paul is saying. In a sense, it, it doesn't really matter. He's moving to a higher level of argumentation here in Romans 3. He hasn't done this up to this point. He starts to... to uh, present his, 
is evidenced with these leading words, it is written. It is written. Now, I can reason with you and show you and argue with you from logic, but now I'm going to show you what Scripture says. It is written. This is what God says about you. This is a perspective from the divine judge himself. And he does this from the general to the specific. In verses 10 and 11, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. A general condemnation of all humans. And then he applies it to two specific instances. In verses 13 and 14 he talks about our speech. And then verses 15 to 18, our actions, and in particular our divisiveness and violence and rage against one another. In verses 13 and 14, he speaks about our throats and our tongues and our lips and our mouth, the vocal apparatus, as instruments that re reveal the condition of our hearts. Think about it. Think about yourself and how you have sinned in what you say, how you communicate. We deceive, he says. We lie. In the South we flatter. We don't want to say mean things about you, so we say nice things about you, but we think mean things about you in our heart. We flatter. We slander. Paul was slandered at the top of this verse about his understanding of the gospel. We, we try to make people look like they really aren't. We slander them. We break promises. We cut people down with our words. We curse. And we speak crudely. And even the religious Jews, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, who had this appearance of righteousness just exuding out of them, you know what Jesus attacks them with? The sins of the tongue. In Matthew 6, He attacks their prayer life. And He says, they pray on street corners to be heard and praised by others. It's all a big show for them. And then He says in Matthew 15, they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. They make confessions. They say the right things with their lips. They know all the right answers, but in their heart there's wickedness and, and, and evil and deception. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it, that these Jewish religious leaders falsely accuse Jesus? And they are the cream of the crop in their society. Then he speaks of our actions in verses 15 to 18. We're quick to shed blood and violence and murder. We bring things to ruin and misery. Instead of peace, we have harmony. Or instead of peace and harmony, we have division. Now, think about that. Maybe not in terms of each individual person, but in terms of human societies. We, we've made a lot of progress, but we haven't seemed to sort these issues out. We still have murder. Uh, just think of our own country in the span of the last four or five months. Riots, murders, people on the streets, angry with each other, fighting with each other. You have that picture of that, that, that uh, 
security guard who shoots a man when the man's spraying mace in his face. I mean, that is still existent in American, Western, first world society. The election year brings out our dark hearts in very clear ways, the slandering and uh, political mudslinging. It's really a perfect picture of verses 13 and 14. We've progressed with transportation, medical field, uh, technology. Think about this. We've, we've, come so gr- we've become so good in the medical f- field of lengthening the span of life. And yet we abort children through that same medical field at astronomical rates. Strange, isn't it? We've progressed with social media. And yet social media can be an outlet for even so-called good people to say the most boneheaded and cutting and divisive stuff. We see it all around us today with all of the progress we've made. So, how does this instruct us about the Gospel? What, what do we so desperately need? And Paul's about to get into this in our next section. We don't need someone to instruct us of a better way. We don't need some tweaking and fixing to make us get back on track. We need a total overhaul. We need to scrap the old nature and replace it with something new. We need our old nature put to death. We need to be created new in Christ Jesus. And I want to close by looking at Romans 6, verses 6 to 11. I think we have some faulty ways of viewing salvation. We think of salvation as... You know, no, no effect, no change to who we are, but just a, a change of how God accepts us. It's like a, a fire insurance policy. Well, we're protected from God's wrath because we've got the policy. Well, that's not, that's not at all why Jesus took on flesh. He took on flesh to present to the world a new humanity, a new man that, that doesn't look like Romans 3, 9 to 18. Something new completely. And it it helps us understand the grid by which we think about our salvation. How do we think about it? Do we think when we assess our identity, do we say to ourselves, that old nature is dead. It's been crucified. It's been buried with Christ. And I am something new. I've been raised as a new creature. In Christ Jesus. Look at Romans 6, verses 6 to 11. And listen very carefully to what the Apostle Paul says. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. 
For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Now look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We think of our identity following Christ's work of death, burial, and resurrection. Who am I? I'm not flesh anymore. That's been put to death, crucified with Christ. I am this new creation. I'm no longer characterized by Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. That's died, and now I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. It powerfully dissects the weakness of the human heart. It exposes our inability to do any good. Oh Lord, we pray that You would bring us low and humble us, help us to acknowledge this so that we can cling to Christ and Him alone. Instead of seeking a righteousness through law and by our own works, help us learn to learn to seek the righteousness of God which comes by faith apart from the works of the law. A righteousness that, that depends on Jesus Christ and on Him alone. I pray, Lord, that You would open our eyes to see and to understand our own condition and the glories of the gospel hope. We pray this in His name, in Christ's name. Amen.